studying Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll find your place there, we're studying the prayer of Paul for the Ephesians and learning how to equip ourselves to pray for one another, for ourselves and for those that we intercede for. And we pick up our reading there in verse 15. Tonight we're going to look at his praying for wisdom and knowledge and hope. Verse 15 of Ephesians 1, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then he tells them exactly what he makes mention of, these requests. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. There are different kinds of knowledge in the Bible. There is an assured or assumed knowledge, which is a result of observing or hearing about something, and then we assume certain things because we've observed or heard it. One is aware of it and may even be convinced of those things. That's a certain knowledge. Then there's an experiential knowledge coming about because of what a person has personally gone through. They know it firsthand. They've experienced it. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, a demon says to the Lord Jesus, I know who you are. Uh, What he said was real. It was true. He assumed it to be true because of various observable things about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he said, I know who you are. But it did not profit him in any way. You see, that knowledge alone is not profitable. It is important, but there must be an experiential knowledge. And this is what Paul is impressing upon the Ephesians. Too often we know a lot of stuff. We know more probably as far as facts are concerned than any other generation. You could probably read one newspaper today and know more than people knew for thousands of years. However, that does not mean just because we know things and we have information available to us that uh, uh, it doesn't necessarily profit us. God does not want us just to know biblical truth to be Bible scholars. Uh, some people have that, uh, that idea. They just gain a lot of Bible knowledge for what? And I'm in no way minimizing the importance of Bible knowledge. But there's a reason why we should know things doctrinally. There's a knowledge that moves us to act and to, to do something literally and personally. When the psalmist declares in Psalm 9, 9 verse 10, that they may know that thy name will, they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. And the one who testifies not only is convinced about the claims of the Lord, but puts his beliefs into action. This is faith. It's not just knowing things. It's putting those things into action, relying on them, acting upon them. Faith is never alone. True faith always acts. And that's why we we study and see in the book of James. He, He pushes that point. Show me not only what you say you believe, but show me why you do it. Show me some of the practical uh, things that result from that said faith. Faith always acts. It causes certain responses. The more we know about the Lord, the more we trust him, the more we serve him, the more that we put our, our, his word to the test in our obedience. In fact, 
If you want an accurate measurement, you can run some self-test on your spiritual growth. To what degree do I obey the knowledge that I already have? To, to how much of the God's word that I know do I put into practice, do I act upon it? Paul is praying here for the Ephesians that their knowledge of the Lord not just be theological facts, but an increased heart knowledge. The kind of knowledge, a knowledge of God in the heart, a true knowledge, the knowledge in the inner man that causes a person to live a godly life. And he mentions that here in his prayer. When we're saved, we're brought out of darkness into light. The Bible gives such glorious and vivid pictures of what conversion is. Various descriptions. Out of darkness into light. And then we grow in our knowledge of him and we're given further light. And we're responsible for the light that we have. The light that God gives us. Isaiah 54 verse 13 promises, All thy children shall be taught of the Lord. The Bible says that God's children will be taught. The Holy Spirit of God will show God's people truth. Hebrews 8 verse 11 declares of those who are truly saved, For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. There's no one who is saved, no matter what age they are, or how long they've been saved, or how esteemed they may be. They will all know me, the Lord says. Now, these kinds of promises from the Lord himself give us the basis for prayer. I will teach you of myself. I will show you things. You shall know my doctrine. That kind of uh, overt promises from, those kinds of overt promises from the Lord gives us the basis of a prayer for trusting him, for pleading his own promises before the throne of grace. The word knowledge here in verse 17 where he says that you'd grow and that he would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It's made up of two Greek words, a combination of the word knowledge and upon. So really we could say knowledge and then some. Knowledge plus or full knowledge. And we see that, for example, in Romans 3 verse 20 where Paul is giving us the, the, the truth of the law and what the law does. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. You can't keep the law and be saved. He says it very clearly. For by the law is the knowledge uh, or the full knowledge of sin. Now, we can know something of sin by our human experience. We can uh, err or do wrong and are punished for it or they're repercussions or consequences and we we know uh, to some degree uh, sin by our human experience we can look around and see the effects can't we of sin and all of us can, can certainly do that and are exposed to that our conscience within us makes us aware also to some degree of sin every person is given a conscience and Paul uh, states very clearly in Romans that the, the, the Gentiles who don't have the law of God Know what's right and wrong. Why? Because the law of God is written on their hearts and in their conscience. And so, but the word of God clearly spells out, for example, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that awareness gives us a full knowledge of sin. Paul is praying for the Ephesians to, to know the Lord truly and fully and completely. We see this in Paul's desire for himself, where he says that famous prayer and our declaration testimony in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 that I may know him 
not just about him or secondhand or from someone else's experience, that I may know him. Now, this is an apostle who's seen the, the resurrected Lord saying this. So if Paul needs to know, more, know, needs to know him more and deeper and more intimately with his privileges and his experience, certainly we should say the same thing, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That was Paul's prayer. This kind of knowledge goes beyond just a Bible study, and I'm not minimizing that at all. It's not just reading and knowing certain things. This kind of knowledge leads to, to fellowship and intimacy. 1 John 1 verse 3 says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're His and He is ours. We have this parent-child relationship with our Heavenly Father. We love Him and we lean on Him and hold to Him and delight in Him. The more we know of Him, the easier it is to follow His leading. Now, one of the things that we so often say, I just want the Lord to guide me. I need the leading of the Lord. Do we not need that every day? And in our conversations with one another, we often say, pray that the Lord would show me what to do in X, Y, Z. Or I need guidance in this area. And the Lord certainly wants to lead and guide his people. It's not as if the Lord is a, a cruel magician in heaven who has us in a maze and delighting in us trying to feel our way through that maze. That's not the picture of God's will at all or of our gracious Heavenly Father. He desires for us to know what's right and what choices to make. And so we're to pray uh, to that end. The more we know him, the easier it is to follow his leading. Proverbs 3, 6, you often quote this verse, In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. This knowledge of him will be the very direction, the very thing that he uses to direct our paths and our choices. And for this kind of knowledge to be real and to be experiential, literal to us individually, there must be a working of the Holy Spirit. You see, God's Spirit is the way he does everything. Uh, the Spirit of God was active in creation, wasn't it? The Spirit of, of the Lord moved upon the face of the deep. In fact, the Bible says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. We see there in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit. You see that? The Holy Spirit's wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. You see, wisdom is exercising faith in the word of God. This is what God's word says, and so we, we put it to practice. But revelation is the Holy Spirit's work. He opens our hearts and our minds, the inner man, the real you, the heart, the soul. We mention those words and use those words interchangeably. That's where the Spirit does his work, in the inner man, showing us the truths of God and that the unsaved person cannot know. Now, I must be very clear here that this type of teaching are for those who know the Lord. The unsaved person may know doctrinal truth, making quote large portions of scripture. Let me just ask you something. Paul on the road to Damascus knew the law backwards and forwards. No doubt he could quote great portions of it. He was zealous. He was not lazy. He was ardent. He thought he was spiritual, didn't he? 
And he knew nothing of the kind until the Lord arrested him and by his spirit showed him some things there on the road to Damascus. And his attitude changed just like that, didn't it? What, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Who art thou, Lord? See, he's now calling this one who was trying to exterminate Lord. How could someone so convinced that this was a, an evil that must be stamped out just immediately say, who art thou, Lord? He already knows, doesn't he? Well, he's asking that. He's praying what he knows. And then he says, Lord, what will thou have me to do? You can only explain that by a revelation of the Holy Spirit of God. This knowledge, this opening up of our hearts and minds in the inner man to the truths of God's word is something, as we've said, the unsaved cannot know. This particular knowledge can only be experienced by regenerate people. You see, that's the first work of the Spirit. He regenerates us. He gives life so that we can see these things. Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. In other words, the so-called wise and prudent. Those down here who are regarded as being the experts. And from the wise and the prudent has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. And no man knoweth the, man, the Father but the Son, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Do you see this revelation, this revealing, must come through the Godhead. And then he, he says, after he says that statement, no one can understand these things unless the Son reveal him. Do you know what promise comes right after that? The great invitation, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn that, as we know from Job's life and from the teaching of the scripture, that there was a hedge, a protective hedge around him. That Satan could not touch him without God's permission. In chapter 6, verse 20, he calls himself an ambassador in bonds. What a creative way to talk about your prison sentence. I'm an ambassador to the... the, the, the actually, what he's saying here, I'm an, an, a God's representative. You know, ambassador represents a kingdom or government to another kingdom. I'm the ambassador of heaven, of God, to the, the royal household here in Rome. That, that puts a whole different perspective on it. And in fact, Paul says that some in, the, in Caesar's household had come to know the Lord. Now, they may have been guards but he calls them all a part of Caesar's vast household who had come to know the Lord because of Paul's imprisonment. He does not pine. He does not complain to make them feel sorry for him as we would be tempted to do, I'm afraid. Instead, he points to theirs and his spiritual blessings. Look what we have to thank the Lord for. Look at these blessings, he says, our spiritual riches, and he prays for them. A.W. Pink writes, there can be no peace of mind, no joy of heart if we fail to recognize that our lot, our circumstance, our condition is fully ordered by a sovereign and gracious God. Satan will whisper that is not true, but God tells us it is. Now, Paul praises God for the amazing conversion of the Ephesians. Every conversion is amazing because it takes amazing grace to save a sinner. 
Those who he tells us in chapter 2, look at just, just a preview of what it takes to save someone. And you hath he quickened, he's made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. There had to be a regenerating work of the Spirit, the, the seed of the Word of God implanted in our hearts to show us, illumine us of our lost condition. What a miracle takes place that anybody comes to saving knowledge of Christ. We would not be leaning toward him. We would not want his salvation. Dead people don't want anything. They're dead. They have to be resurrected. Each one a miracle of God's grace. And this cheered Paul. As he was in prison, he reflected back over his ministry, and he began to rehearse how they came to know the Lord at all. He goes back to Acts chapter 19. That's the story. You don't have to turn there, but you ought to go back and read, again, the founding of the church at Ephesus. It's an amazing story, exciting. He had founded the church at Corinth. He leaves there, and Acts 19 records the the founding of the church at Ephesus, how the Lord used the preaching of Paul to do it. He found a group of 12 men who had repented under the preaching of, of John the Baptist. They had not heard of the completed work of the Messiah. And so Paul asked them, did they have any knowledge of the Holy Spirit? They, they didn't know what he was talking about. So Paul preaches to them. They, they had not heard of these things, and Paul baptizes them. They, they came to know the fullness of salvation. He baptizes them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And he preached boldly in the synagogue for three months, disputing false doctrine, persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God, which led to him staying in Ephesus for two years. What an amazing thing that in two years' period of time, he established under the help of the Lord an amazing, strong, fervent church. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says that, so that all that which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. At the time of the end of Paul's stay in Ephesus, he could say, or the Holy Spirit records, that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word, heard the gospel. That's without technology, folks. That's without Twitter and, and Facebook and computers and radios and all the stuff that, that are indispensable and we praise God for. The, the, the first hundred years of the church did more in spreading the gospel than we've done in, in the 1900 years since then. Is that not amazing? They were on fire, zealous to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. So many came to Christ from idolatry and witchcraft. They were saved out of horrible backgrounds. Don't ever underestimate the power of the gospel. It is still the power of God into salvation to everyone that believe it. That word in the Greek is dynamite. And you, that's a good picture, isn't it? When you, when you want to blow up something, remove a building or or a mountain or something, they use dynamite to do it. God's gospel blows up the hardness of the heart, removes all the the trash and the the callousness, and makes it pliable to receive the gospel. That's what we should pray. And when we read Acts 20, again, that records, it's one of the most poignant messages in the, the book of Acts, it is Paul's pastoral message when he leaves the, the, the elder. By the time he leaves Ephesus, there's several elders, several congregations there. He gathers them together, and he, he tells them that what he's done, what he's going to do. It's his farewell address. 
It's a very, they're, they're crying. It's a very, he warns them about grievous wolves will come in and try to destroy the church. And uh, he, it's a classic message on, on preachers staying true to the call of God upon them and just stay and do what you're supposed to do. Preachers are called to preach the word of God. That's what we're called to do. And you can get off track. You can so easily, there's so much that can get you off base. But that's what God desires his preachers to do. And then he gives them his own testimony of how he conducted his ministry there. Paul was impeccable in his character. He did everything above board. He, he made sure that, that, that no blame would be attributed to his ministry or to the cause of Christ by how he conducted his ministry. Then at the writing of this letter, he has gone for, uh, from them for, been gone for them for several years now, but he's still getting reports about how the church at Ephesus is doing. And he's just gotten, here he is in prison for the cause of Christ. And I'm sure Satan was whispering in his ear, so this is what you get for, for doing all that. And probably on one of the worst days, the news came how the churches in, in Ephesus were doing. And he's rejoicing. He's responding to a report that he's gotten from the converts there at Ephesus. The wonderful things that God was doing in the church, and he enumerates those things as we've just read. These requests, this this report from Ephesus prompts Paul to give praise to God, as all reports, good reports should do. God should be praised in everything. When we hear our missionary reports, we, we should praise God that these young people heard the call of God and were willing to go to a country far away and to give themselves uh, to, to the ministry of the Lord. That, that's cause to praise God tonight. And when you praise God for the obedience of others, it prompts you to be obedient. It prompts you to praise the Lord for all that he's done in your own life. And so this is an example to them that they should, too should praise the Lord for all he'd done for them. Sometimes we have to point that out to people. So this may be a reminder to the Ephesians. Now listen, do you remember what God did? I want to tell you what God has done and what he's going to do and what he's doing. And that spurs us to praise him. Much of our prayer, although we should bring every request to the throne of grace, and not undermining that or underestimating that at all, but I would say, if you have to give a percentage, whatever that may be, a large percent should be in praising God for what he has done. Psalm 50, verse 23 says, Whoso offereth praise glorifies me. So, you want to know how to glorify God? Praise Him. Thank Him. Enumerate what He has done. Psalm 33, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely. It's appropriate for the upright. Of course it's appropriate for us. We've been saved by His grace. We're recipients of these things. How, how appropriate it is. Have you made a list? And I just give you a homework assignment sometime. Just sit down and start enumerating the blessings. Write them out. You know, the old gospel song, count your blessings, name them one by one. You'll get a long list. And then go back and thank the Lord and praise him for all of those specifics. That'll take a good deal of time, won't it? We, we, the Lord has done so much for us. If he never answered another prayer, look what he's done. How often he's come to our, uh, on our behalf and answered prayers. And so... We, we should take Paul's example here in praising and, and thanking God for what he's done in, in the lives of others. You know, it, it's a mark of our spiritual growth if we are jealous of the spiritual blessings in someone else's life. 
Now, I know we're all human, and we have to be careful about this, but when we hear of good reports, wonderful spiritual growth in ministries, homes, whatever it may be, that ought to prompt praise for us that God is at work. When you hear revival in places, people coming to know the Lord, when you hear the great things that God is doing, oh, it should prompt us to praise him. You see, Satan wants us to be jealous. Jealousy will squelch praise, won't it? And we notice here in verse 15, their faith and their love. These two always go hand in hand. Faith and love, are, we see them joined often in the scripture. And they're firmly joined. Faith in Christ produces love for him, doesn't it? And it produces love for other believers. The faith referred to here is a growing, working faith that flowed from that initial act of faith in salvation. You see, it's not just a one-time event. I, I meet so many people who view their salvation as something that happened when they were 12 years old or something in the ancient past in the vestibule before church. Some of us were comparing ages, you know, and how old we are and how old we will be, you know, all that kind of thing. And uh, if, In a spiritual life, though, if you're not careful, you'll begin to, to be far removed from those major works of grace in your life, your conversion, or surrendering to the Lord in some, some area. But we should never be a static, something ecstatic in the past. Our faith, we have been saved, we are being saved, aren't we? And we shall be saved. In that sanctification process, that growth in grace that, that, that God is doing in our lives is something to rejoice about. We do not stay stagnant. If you do, that's, that's, a, that's a negative thing. I think if you were to plot what a Christian life looks like, if this is conversion where I am, it should be a steady increase toward glory. There should not be some leveling off because you're going nowhere if you level off. You're just in neutral. Who wants to be in neutral? When you get in your car, you put it in gear to go somewhere, either backwards or forwards. Neutral is nothing, isn't it? Might as well be in park. And that's where so many people are spiritually, just neutral. They rejoice they're not where they used to be. Praise God for that. And they, they act like they ought to get a prize for just, you know, coasting. Well, that's not, that's not a good thing in the spiritual life. We ought to be going from glory to glory, grace to grace, from answered prayer to answered prayer, from putting out of sin to trusting the Lord more. And this is what Paul rejoices over in their lives. There is this growing, working faith that could be said that all of Asia knew about the Lord because of their working faith. They continued in the years since Paul left them. Now, the, the, the heartbreak of a missionary or a founding pastor is if the Lord calls them away and they hear the work is shriveled up and that people don't care or they've grown cold or apathetic, what a grievous thing. When our missionaries come home from the mission field, they're always like a, a mother away from the nursery wondering about their children. And they worry, you know, for lack of better words, are they going to stay true? Do they really make a strong profession of faith? But for Paul to be in prison at a low point, let's face it, anybody's in prison, you can call yourself a prisoner of the Lord, but we know that he'd rather be outside of prison preaching and establishing churches than being in prison. And yet he gets this good report from the Ephesians, and he rejoices. It makes his day. And he's so overjoyed. He praises God then for their faithful walk. That's something to praise God, that people do stay faithful, that they continue on continuing until the Lord calls them home. Uh, the, 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 the true saving faith produces good works, James teaches us. 
And there in James chapter 2, he asked pointedly uh, to those who professed saving faith in Christ, but there wasn't really any fruit. Remember, he said, well, I'll tell you one thing. He just kind of summarizes it. He says, true religion, pure religion, and undefiled. And he gives them two two, uh, projects to visit the widows and the orphans. He says, now, that ought to be a good project for someone who says they know the Lord. He just... He's just giving that as an example. Go do something for those less fortunate. There was no program for the, the widows and the orphans. In fact, in the early church, often the Christian ladies would scour the streets of the cities because if there were twin born, twins born, they left them to die. Or if there were any uh, special needs children, the, in the Roman thought, there was, it had to be perfection. They had a superstition that twins were uh, satanic or there was not to be desired are special needs children. And so orphanages and caring for the orphans became a very real part of the ministry of the early church. And that's why Paul, that's why James uses that example. It was something that obviously some of them weren't doing. If you're so spiritual, he's saying, and they're bragging on their spirituality, I have faith. He says, well, show it to me. Go do something. Now, he's not saying they're saved by going and getting, uh, adopting children, but he's saying put that, that faith that you're talking about and bragging about and testifying about to good, to good use. So what, what, what do you have to show for, he's asking them. Fruit is expected, and it's also a, a byproduct of faith. In verse 15, he mentions their, their love for all the saints. The Bible is very clear about this, that that's a sign of true spiritual life, when we love the brethren. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, John tells us he's a liar. It's very plain, isn't it? For whom he he that loveth not his brother whom he can see, but how can he love God whom he hath not seen? In John three, first John three fourteen, we know that we have passed from death unto life, spiritual death into spiritual life, because we have love for the brethren. This is a supernatural love that God puts in our hearts. He didn't say it'd always be easy, but there's a love there for, for those outside of Christ and for other our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul not only thanks the Lord for his work in the Ephesians' lives. Think about it. If someone is turned from darkness to light, God had to do that work there. It's such a miraculous thing. Don't take for granted a conversion. As our young people and teens and all across the way, and the workers there who are teaching them the word of God in the memory verses, we're praying, as, as our brother prayed at the offering, that that word would become the seed that would bring them to saving faith in Christ. And when it does, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? I was reading recently, one of the person in our new membership class, we have them write out testimonies. And I always love to read these testimonies because it, it's a chart, it's a statement of how the Lord brought them to faith. And, and this young lady was saying, you know, I remember the day when it dawned on me that it was by God's pure, sovereign grace that I know him. And I could rest in that. And what a joyful thing. It just made me weep to read that. Because every time that happens, a miracle has taken place to bring the, to open the, the eyes up to someone to see the Lord. Well, he asked for continued mercies. Now, this is not greedy, but when God gave his manna graciously every day to the Old Testament believers, guess what? They needed it how often? Every day. And the manna represents what we need day by day, spiritually, emotionally, whatever it is. In fact, in the New Testament, what does the Lord ask us for? Ask tells us to pray for daily. Ask for your daily bread. Again, that symbolizes 
the, the staff of life, the vital things of life, tangible, yes, but those spiritual resources that only God can give. He never tires. And when we come to prayer meetings like this, we remind ourselves God never tires. You might get weary of somebody asking for the same. If your neighbor came over every day and asked for a cup of sugar, at some point you'd say, why didn't she go buy a bag of sugar? You know, you'd get to the point, you know, that you'd get weary of that, wouldn't you? And uh, that's, that, well, that takes you back. People don't even borrow sugar from next-door neighbors anymore. They don't, probably, I don't know. When I was a boy, we did that. We would, my mother would send me next door to borrow something. We lived in that close-knit communities, and, and you would do that. But if someone continually came and asked us for the same need over and over, we'd begin to wonder after a while, wouldn't we? We might get a little weary of that. But the things we need that only God can give, he never tires of supplying them for us. And so he writes in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation. That's something to thank him for, isn't it? He doesn't ask that God keep them from trials. He doesn't say, Lord, make the Ephesians' life easy for them. Don't, don't let them have any bumps in the road today. He didn't, he didn't pray that way. Interestingly, he addresses God as the Father of glory. Now, if you're not careful, when you read portions of Scripture like this, you'll overlook things like that. And any name or title for God in the Scripture is there for a purpose. It's when, when God is described in a certain way, as we is here, the Father of glory, that means we need to take note of that. Why is Paul referring to the Father here as the Father of glory? In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, it tells us he is glorious in holiness. In Psalm 111, verse 3, his work is honorable and glorious. In Isaiah 63, verse 12, his arm is glorious. And that anthropomorphic phrase, the arm of the Lord, because God is spirit and has not a, a body, but the scripture has to tell us things like that about God or we couldn't comprehend him. When you read about the arm of God, it's his power, his might, his working on behalf of his people. And that's why we so often rejoice in prayer meetings. Lord, your ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. Your arm shortened that it cannot save. He's powerful enough to do that. In Isaiah 30, verse 30, his voice is glorious. Well, how, is God's, how do we hear God's voice? In his word. We'd have to say his word is glorious, wouldn't we? How perfect and wonderful it is. In Psalm 148, verse 13, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. So Paul is referring to, to, to the God of glory. What a glorious father he is. We're not asking things of someone who can't do them. We're asking glorious things from a glorious father. Psalm 84, verse 11 says, The Lord will give grace and glory. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, But we all beholding with open face as in the glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So why does Paul use this particular title for God, the God of glory, or the God, for God the Father? Everything in the Scriptures we mention is for a purpose, and there's nothing just for random. Paul is not just saying, well, I don't have a good word to call God. I'll just call him the God of glory. That's not what he's doing here. He's asking God for miraculous, heavenly, glorious things for the Ephesians. That their understanding be open. 
that they'd have enlightenment, that they would increase in spiritual wisdom and knowledge, all these things that only God can do. And so if the Ephesians needed these things, and they do, did, and we do, then we're certainly standing in need of them as well. And so these are some things that we should ask the Lord for. And so we read in verse 17 what he first requests for them. And I'm just going to introduce it tonight because we're going to look at all these requests one by one. The first thing he asks for is what something we need, you can say in old Alabama terms, a wagon load of. And he asks that, for, that they have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, if you're a believer, you long to know the Lord more. If you truly know him, you want to know him more. You want to, as Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be made conformable to his will. We long to know him. We long to know him more intimately, don't we? Because at times it seems as if that the Lord is not near for whatever the circumstances in our lives. And we say, Lord, I, I, I need to feel your nearness. I want to, to feel your, your, your closeness to me. We pray in faith, believing and asking him to reveal more of himself to us, uh, more of his will, more of his ways. We ask him to reveal to us any area of disobedience or sin in our lives. This is constantly examining and reviewing and asking the Lord to reveal himself to us. He loved us. He chose us. He provided salvation for us. Surely all of this is incentive to pray for these other blessings as well. It's amazing all around us today, even among professing believers, and this is a little bit what I was talking about just before in the coasting along, is that how little of the Lord is known. Oh, he's talked about spiritual lingo, we all that kind of thing. But when you really examine the life, and I'm not trying to be judgmental here, I'll just say in my own heart and life, I'm grieved at how, how little uh, I seem to know of the Lord at times, how, how little of the Lord is known how shallow the knowledge of his word. And because of that, the shallowness of our spiritual lives. Well, it shouldn't be, should it? We have this well, this wellspring of God's knowledge and wisdom for us. And it's amazing. But again, for the Ephesians, Paul is asking just that, for the Lord to add to what they already know. It's a sad thing. One of the hardest things to do as a pastor and to be in the same place for 30-something years is for the people to have the attitude, I know that, I've heard that. I've heard Ephesians before. We, I've been to the Bible study. I have the certificate. You know, you see the look that comes over people's faces as if this was some course you could pass in school. You know, you took economics or whatever it was and you passed that. That's not the scripture. That's not the way the Bible is. This is the living word of God. And we cannot get to the, the, the bottom of the, the glories of the, of the word of God. And so I, he's saying, I know you know these things, Ephesians, but I want you to know them more. I want these things to be added to your spiritual knowledge. They already have the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment, the earnest. Any of you who've ever bought a house, I'm sure put earnest money down. It's a promise to pay the rest of it for the next 30 years or whatever. And uh, that earnest there promises what else god has promised us what a glorified perfect body in heaven one day now we don't have that yet but we have the down payment of that his holy spirit is the earnest for that he's asking for the spirit of truth or literally the holy spirit of truth to give them greater understanding of the truth found in god's word please don't ever get jaded and callous 
toward the miraculous, glorious word of God. Notice he asked that the Father of glory would give to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. When we were regenerated, the seed of the word of God was implanted in our hearts. As Peter tells us, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. It was the Holy Spirit who gives us wisdom. And here in Paul's request, we see something more. We see the word revelation. The Holy Spirit is a revealer. We would not have seen Christ as the Savior, the the perfect Son of God, if that was not revealed to us. There's a far difference to know these things as facts in the head and to be revealed to those things to us in the heart. The Holy Spirit is a revealer of the things of God. In fact, Jesus said, I'm going to send him, that he will do that. He'll reveal to you. He'll convict of sin. He'll show you the things of the Father. He'll lead you and guide you into all truth. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them to us, how? By spirit. When we meet, when we hear the gospel preached, when we come for worship, when we come for Bible study, oh, our deep prayer it ought to be, Lord, reveal to us your will. Reveal to us the treasures of your word. Reveal to those who are lost who need to hear. Only God can do that. Now, he goes on to say, we've received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. He enumerates these blessings, but he wants them to know them in a deeply personal way. Paul is seeking from the Father of glory on behalf of the Ephesian believers an increased measure of light, of illumination, of divine things. He's asked for them to to have more wisdom, to understand the things of God, spiritual truths, doctrine that would transform their own praying and ministry and outlook on life. Paul, saying that he's a prisoner of the Lord, he didn't just get there overnight. Remember what he told the Philippians? I had to learn these things. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. I will show myself to him. Reveal myself to him, Jesus says in John 14, verse 21. One of the prophecies of Isaiah is this, Isaiah 54, verse 13. The Lord prophesies of a time, All my children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Well, he's asking the Lord to do that in the Ephesians' life, that that these spiritual children would be taught of the Lord and that great would be the peace of thy children. Peace is not the absence of stuff going on. Peace is not the absence of turmoil. Peace is that inner work of the Spirit that only God can give and that the world cannot take away. He's asking the Lord to fulfill this in their literal experience. The only way to have more knowledge of God the Father is to know the Son more intimately. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And as we come before the Lord tonight in in prayer, believing the Lord, let us ask the, the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him.